as a country, investing in education is a no-brainer, right? It's yeah. like, hey, how can I increase the marginal productivity of all my citizens, thus increasing GDP? Not a controversial idea, right? Yeah. Not a crazy idea. But I think often education gets politicized and there is this sort of cultural aspect of rich people want their kids to go to better schools. They want to spend right. more money on them. They want to control what their kids learn, things like that. And I think that can lead to a bifurcation where you can have more resource school, less resource schools. And then that leads to basically people pulling their kids out of public systems to go to more private systems, right. which leads to defunding of public systems, which kind of leads to like a negative cycle. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Acevil, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Morning, Shiyan. Where in the world are you these days? I am in Bozeman, Montana. Ooh, how's that? It's awesome. If you guys haven't been to Bozeman, it's the nearest airport to Big Sky, which has got some great skiing, as well as the west entrance of Yellowstone Park. So it's one of these booming post-pandemic cities. Lots of people moved here during the pandemic for the outdoors and have stayed. So there's like tons of construction everywhere. The population's like 60,000 people maybe, but they have a Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> important facts and it looks like you have some cute photos of your kids and partner enjoying themselves as well now we spent a week on a dude ranch which is kind of like a hilariously american concept you know you play cowboy for a week but you ride horses you don't have internet you're in the great outdoors you go hiking yeah. fly fishing we caught some trout in the gallatin river that was very exciting oh, wow. um you know what the key to fly fishing is, Jeremy? Lunch. A really good guide. <laughs> so you need the guy who like knows what's the right type of fly to tie onto your line and where the secret spots are on the river where the fish hang out. This is an analogy for startups. Like the secret to a really good startup is a good guide like Shiyan. No, <laughs> no. Because... <laughs> Startups are like a multi-year journey. Fly fishing is this thing you do on vacation and you really want to catch fish and you don't know anything about this place. And so <laughs> it's more like getting like an expert consult when you need to yeah. make one big decision. Yeah. But it was awesome because the other guests were like, 
oh, what was your secret, you know, when you went out and caught the fish? And I was like, the guide? That was her secret? <laughs> Don't even pretend you have some sort of skill. But yes, yeah. but because it's in a national park, you can't eat the fish. Once you catch uh, it, you take your photo and then you got to let it go. Okay, good to know. Well, I'm calling from sunny Manila. It's beautiful. And I think I had a wonderful dinner with all of the various VCs. You know, obviously, Foxmon, Kaya, Founders, 917 Ventures, EHG Labs. Really interesting to have that conversation about the ecosystem. As well as to meet, honestly, about a dozen founders so far. Really interesting to see the ecosystem grow so quickly. The energy is high and excitement is there. And I think everyone's trying to look for more opportunities. Sounds I think good. Yeah, I think it was interesting to see that obviously there's been a slowdown in Southeast Asia across capital deployment, but I think Philippines was looking and growing from a smaller base. So there's been a dip this year, but to a much lesser extent compared to other geographies. So I think to some ways it's also less disruptive. You know, there's less whiplash around the whole startup ecosystem. So it's been interesting to have that chat. What happened over the past week in terms of news, I think one of them was The Economist rediscovered Southeast Asia tech. And Southeast Asia, I think, is very much because there's a correspondent now who's based in Singapore covering the region. I think that had, they had previously moved one of the folks, if not wrong, from China. And so I think it's interesting to see the conversations there. I think the first one they said was why Vietnamese schools are so good. And then secondly, of course, talking about super app companies in Southeast Asia not doing so well, being stuck in a rut. So let's do super apps first. I guess everyone's thinking about it. Um, so sure. the article basically said that super apps are the idea of multiple blades of products and services, and that the Chinese ones have done well because they built around a core of profitable services and then other services feed into it. However, they felt that GoTo as well as Grab had not performed so well. And they compared this interestingly to Kakao and KTM as companies that also had some similar super app dynamics as well. So it's not just a Southeast Asian phenomenon, to some extent, maybe a emerging market phenomenon. I think that they're trying to bucket all of this together. So yeah, not too much in fresh insights. I think frankly, it felt like somebody was explaining Southeast Asian super apps to the West, but I thought it was interesting to see that big mention and article in The Economist. And she, I know you've previously shared some thoughts about super apps. I don't know, maybe. I mean, I think this comes up a lot, right? Which is like, why are there super apps in emerging markets and you don't see them as much in developed markets? I think partially that's like a level of competition that you see in more developed markets where lots of people have already occupied verticals and it's much harder actually to go horizontal. Whereas in emerging markets, because there's less stuff that has been built, right. it's much easier to go horizontal. And I think the issue of like, is the first service that you anchor your super app on profitable or is it meant to be a loss leader? Right. Because... If it is a loss leader that puts so much pressure on the rest of the offerings yeah. to make the math work, right, on LTV. Right. And so I think that's always been a challenge, especially when ride hailing was very competitive, when right. you had Grab, Gojek, and Uber, who was in market at the time, all competing, people spending vast sums of money. That initial first app use case wasn't as profitable. And then we had to sell these other stories around financial services, food delivery, movie tickets, you know, what have you. And so I think at the end of the day, you just have to be really clear and honest with yourself on what is actually the math of user acquisition and repeat usage and be pretty disciplined on are you seeing 
cohort profitability and do you get people to come back? And I think my sense is with rideshare, people do a lot of price comparison and they don't have as much loyalty. So then it makes sort of the additional usage of other services weaker. Whereas I think anyone who's gone to China and used WeChat or Ali has really mm. been blown away by that ecosystem where literally you open it up and you're like five menus deep. You can do anything. You want a haircut? You want a massage? You need to order books, whatever it is, it's all there and it all runs on the same payment rails. And so that ultimately is incredibly sticky and compelling. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if you are a startup and you're building, for example, in Vietnam or you're building in Thailand and you have a solid technology team that built out one product, then it's easier from anybody's perspective to continue building some sort of blue ocean product in the same country rather than having to figure out another geography. And then there's probably another player who's also building the exact same product anyway already. So I think dividing, conquering the Southeast Asian markets by geography feels like an easier conversation to have strategically from an individual founder's perspective. But I also really like what you said about the fact that you can do it badly, right? And I think we saw, unfortunately, there are some companies, I think Warong Tech is a good example. We had uh, Google Cast Lumo, unfortunately, a wound down, they raised $160 million, which was, I think, the star, honestly, of Southeast Asia, kind of like tech in terms of growth rounds and so forth. And they wound down and I thought graciously wound down and returned $80 million to investors. But it felt like there was a certain dynamic where I think in, t in terms of the post-mortem that was there, they had this initial product, which was doing counting for software for warungs. And then based on that, they would do lending, which is similar to Katabook in India. But eventually it just turned out that these two products didn't really feed each other. Like lending didn't really require the accounting side and the accounting side wasn't generating. So it was an interesting dynamic. I don't know. It's not an easy play and not an easy set of lessons. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing we always kind of run into in emerging markets is willingness to pay. Right. And when you think about the segment that you're going after, you know, how much budget do they really have for the thing you're trying to sell them? And you kind of have to be honest with yourself, like, while they're happy to use it while it's free, once you start asking them for money, is it so valuable to them that they keep doing it, that they want to pay? Or do they turn immediately? Because then that's mm. a kind of a sign that there's like, it's not painful enough, right. right? Or the pricing doesn't work, which is why I think you see so many more transactional payment models in emerging markets than you see subscription models, because yeah, that's kind of I like a cut. lot more aligned mm. to people saying like, okay, I only make money when you make money. But I think you have to really be honest with yourself on that, which is like, hey, I see this great uptake on my free product, but the rubber really hits the road when I start asking for money. Uh, That's also something that emerging market investors kind of like have been, I think, aware about, but also have been kind of like thoughtful about. But I think it feels like a lot of the US-based investors that have been investing in Southeast Asia are starting to kind of understand these set of dynamics as well. I think that was much less obvious, I would say, four years ago, right? So we had Target Global, we had Insight Partners that was investing very heavily in many of these businesses. And I think they were very much predicated on that, like you said, assumption that that was the right product market fit, right? You know, we had a right target customer in terms of willingness to pay. You know, there's lots of additional market size to go after. Yeah, I don't know though. I mean, I think you don't want to count out entrepreneurial ingenuity, right? It's yeah. possible we just haven't quite found the right shape or format yet right. that really gets to people. But I do think it's, it's like lending businesses, right? People mm. are like, 
oh my god i have this explosive demand and you're like yeah you're offering people free money this is not a shocking idea <laughs> or really cheap money that's not actually product market fit right because that business is actually about risk management it's not about who wants free money and so i think with some of these other things it's like hey when i offer something for free is it real or not does that actually turn into a real business? And that's the yeah. hard, hard question. I think one of the key learnings, and I was having this conversation with a founder who was kind of reflecting on some of these lessons. And I think one of the big lessons is that, I mean, obviously nobody says free money, right? I think it's very much having a point of view is that we're trying to create a category and we're here to educate a consumer. And the promise here is that by educating consumer, we're able to generate that recurring demand over time. But what's been interesting to learn is that a lot of that actually may not necessarily be creating the demand, but may actually be pulling forward demand from future time periods, right? And so the moment you start trying to wind down that subsidy or consumer education budget, it actually doesn't, even your revenues don't stay up, unfortunately. And that's when I think this, depending on how much budget you went for consumer education, how much that player was, et cetera. And that can be a very difficult conversation to have both at a board level, but even internally, right? Which is like, hey, now that we're turning off this pipe, we're not even seeing slightly less demand or continued demand as we projected, but it's actually almost as if it's a cliff because all that demand got pulled forward from next year into this year. And now they're not spending because they aren't willing to pay anymore. And I think that can make the company very fragile, unfortunately. I mean, I think the reality is like customer education is expensive. Yeah. And ideally you can find something that doesn't have to change people's behavior too much. Yeah. Right. It's just that it's so much better, faster, cheaper, whatever it is, but it's kind of in line with what they already wanted to do. Yeah. Um, that you don't have to spend that much time or money teaching them how yeah. to do something. It's always like now, you know, I see a lot of founders who are saying like we have second mover advantage. And that's a plus these days because, you know, what would they say is like, oh, you know, first movers already spend all this money educating the market and so so forth. And now we are second mover because we're picking up the pieces in terms of like talent, leadership, clients who have been stranded and we learn those lessons. Yeah, but I also think that that's why it's like not going broad on your initial target segment is also helpful. Right. Like actually finding a narrow segment that wants this thing that you have yeah. that you don't need to educate them a lot and they're like, yeah. it doesn't cost as much basically to reach them because they're super narrow. You know where to find them. They want the thing already and you can kind of mature the product with that group before you go broad. Kind of buys you more time basically and it buys you learning for less money before you kind of go nuts that's kind of what we try to encourage folks to do because it's really hard to change people's behavior people are yeah. really lazy they have high inertia yeah and i think on a similar note we saw that there was a spend more right and there was a leadership transition and part of that obviously was driven by some of the headlines that i think two street asia put out in terms of like internal management and leadership and also, I think there was also a noting that there was very high valuation multiple from Insight Partners and Tigal to invested in the company. That was much higher than the comparative norms. And I think one of the conversations that was discussed was about product market fit in terms of what uses shared tree. And it's just that the company was funded in way ahead of where they were in terms of product market fit. And I think that's one of the conversations. What do you think, Shia? Which part? Leadership transition, funding ahead of growth? Where do you want to start? Well, it's up to you. I mean, I think leadership transitions are tough, right? Which is like yeah. when the founder steps back and you bring in so-called more professional management, is that on net better for the company or not? Mm. And I think there have been oscillations in this, right? I would say in the early days of venture capital, that was pretty common. Like companies yeah. were started by deeply technical people 
And then at a certain point, they would try to bring in these like professional managers to come in and take the company to the next period. But then yeah. we swung, the pendulum swung into a period of much more like founder friendly, like, hey, founders can take it all the way and we just need to build the teams around them. And, you know, you see founders kind of taking the company all the way to IPO. Right. Um, but that is still actually quite rare, I would say. Right. It is more right. common than it was in the past, but it's actually quite rare to say that like, hey, I'm going to find a guy or girl who has all these amazing zero to one, one to 10 qualities, who's also yeah. the same person who can manage a team that's running a hundred, 200, $300 million business. I think that's actually quite rare. Most people cap out. And also most people, it's really tiring. Mm. You get really, really tired. Yeah. And at some point you're kind of like, I don't know if I can do this. And maybe I would welcome taking a different role, more of an advisory role, bringing in more professional management and being able to participate in a different way in a business. Yeah. I mean, with the Spenwell case, I don't have any inside information on this. Guy's been in seat, what, three, four years? It's a 2019 founded business, maybe. And I think something that we don't talk about a lot is that raising venture capital money comes with venture capital expectations. Right. And the more money you raise and the more investors you have around the table, the more stakeholders you have who are like, right. hey, man, I give you a bunch of money. That comes with certain expectations. And it may be that folks are not signed up for some of that stuff or didn't realize what that all was. And that there may be other people who are better suited to kind of take that business into that next phase. Yeah. Um, and it looks like they brought on a pretty experienced operator and, and capital raiser. So maybe that's a few hints as to where the business is headed. Yeah. I remember two years ago and everybody really respected the spend more and more for the fundraise. In fact, we'll say even envious as well for a lot of folks. So a lot of folks will come up and say, hey, this valuation is not where near the spend multiple, for example. So you should look at spend more and therefore look at us. And I'll be like, okay, let's look at where the business is today and let's have that conversation. And now, of course, that's another story altogether. So I think it's a shame. And I think it goes back to what we discussed in the past, which is that Unfortunately, a large fundraise comes, like you said, with large expectations, but it's also isn't a marker of success. It's just a marker of some sort of like combination of fundraising capability times the market conditions, times where the company's at. I think it's from the outside in, I think, and I always remember when I found Rupert and everyone's like, amazing, so much success, da, da, da. and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it's more expectations, more work that needs to be done. Not easy at all. This is another t-shirt in the line, Jeremy. I always tell yeah. people, you didn't start a company to raise money. You start a company to make money. Oh, yeah. Why is it so hard? Dude, I mean, yeah. getting people to give you money, customer money, I mean, investor yeah. money, is hard. Yeah, it is. And yeah. so, I mean, even my daughter realized this, you know? You think like a cute little six-year-old selling cookies, everyone would give her money? Not true. Lots of people just walk straight past her like, I don't need a cookie today. Sorry, I'm on a diet. Yeah. No, I'm not hungry. I just ate lunch. I'm gluten-free. I mean, I don't know, whatever. A million reasons, okay? But it is hard to make money. And we shouldn't expect anything different, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. So uh, speaking about other Southeast Asian news, the economists also discovered the quality of Vietnamese education. And it says they finally, I think, recognized it by talking about the headline, why are Vietnam schools so good? And I think they opened an article by talking about how Ho Chi Minh the founding father of modern Vietnam had put together a conversation and invested with the rest of the party where even though the country's G GDP per capita is about $4,000 lower than the regional peer Malaysia and Thailand, it was able to basically have an education system that teaches kids to not only outperform the counterparts in Malaysia and Thailand, 
but also in Britain and Canada, where countries are more than six times richer. They also mentioned about how in Vietnam, student scores do not show the same level of gender inequality that is really common in other regions. And then I think they talk about how female literacy rates in Vietnam has continued to improve, whereas those in Bangladesh and India and Nigeria have fallen over time. And yeah, it talks about how Vietnamese is investing in high quality teachers, but also has a very strong command and control system around education to make sure that all of that is happening. So yeah, that's the summary of The Economist this week for Vietnamese schools. What do you think, Shien? I mean, none of that sounds super surprising to me. If you really think about education, we have kids now, so I think about education a lot more. But as a country, investing in education is a no-brainer, right? It's yeah. like, hey, how can I increase the marginal productivity of all my citizens, thus increasing GDP? Not a controversial idea, right? Like, okay, right. we should spend money doing this. Okay, we've agreed. Then the question is like, how do we spend money, right? right. And I think there are questions around like, do you have a national curriculum? Do you have a national accreditation system for teachers? Do you hold teachers at the same standard? regardless right. of where they serve. How do those teachers get allocated? How does that curriculum get implemented? These are all sort of like managerial questions, right? It actually has nothing to do with education. It's like, if you were a business and you were running multiple factories or multiple stores, it's like, hey, how do right. I get a standard output? I control the inputs. I have an yeah. SOP manual. Yeah. Not a crazy idea. But I think often education gets politicized. And there is this sort of cultural aspect of like, Rich people want their kids to go to better schools. They want to spend right. more money on them. They want to like control what their kids learn, things like that. And I think that can lead to a bifurcation where you can have more resource school, less resource schools. And then that leads to basically people pulling their kids out of public systems to go to more private systems, right. which leads to defunding of public systems, which kind of leads to like a negative cycle. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know a lot of details about the Vietnamese school system, but I suspect they have some of the benefits of a communist past where there was like a lot of standardization and the sort of gender inequality was not as bad, which is like, hey, yeah. comrades, we're all in this together, man. Like, let's yeah. go. Women hold um, up half the sky. There's a common it, yeah, uh, Chinese. Exactly. Uh, common exactly that. And so those things don't sound crazy to me. I'm not surprised that the Vietnamese school system is good. I don't know about how it compares to like Malaysia or Thailand or Canada. I don't know anything about those school systems. But I think if we all actually just thought about education like a business problem, it actually is not shocking why there's variance in educational outcomes. Because some of the decisions people make are like truly insane. <laughs> and so like in the US, it's crazy to me that schools are funded based on property taxes. So you're like, okay, of course there's high variance because some people are going to pay a lot of property taxes and some people are not going to. And that's going to result in different funding for schools, right? Like, okay, yeah. that's not a crazy thing. The US doesn't have a national curriculum. So those are set at the state level. So you're going to see variants as well. And they don't have sort of a national accreditation requirement. And they have sort of a public and private system. And so, and there's a lot of controversy over curriculum and, you know, parents wanting or not wanting certain things to be taught or not taught. And that creates a lot of political battles. So I don't know. Some things can be made more complicated than they actually have to be. Yeah, and I think within the context of Southeast Asia, I think it's important, like you said, for an education system to be well-managed, that's one. And two, also, there needs to be an absolute amount of capital investment as well as invested on a per-child basis. So you need both quality of management, but also need some quantity of capital to go into it. And I think there's a very large variation, right? I was in Cambodia, 
And one of the things that we learned was just that the government was investing very little, unfortunately, into the education system, right? And so there's a large number of international donors as well as private systems that were trying to cover the gap. But obviously, they can only cover the gap so far versus a national priority. And I think it obviously definitely shows up in the kind of caliber of talent that is able to emerge from the children, but also I think it changes the economic futures, right? And then we fast forward 10, 20, 30 years down their life, and then we have conversations about how, wow, Vietnam is turning to a technology hub because they have so many engineers, you know, they are highly sophisticated in terms of computer engineering and how they're looking at the world. It's kind of like, sometimes you feel like the conversation is like snapshotish. <laughs> Everyone's like, wow, Vietnam is so good, but they don't talk about education system decisions that were made 20, 30 years ago. I think a lot of folks are like, oh, what does it take for this country's ecosystem to be a great technology place? And I'm like, well, we got to talk about education today. And then in 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see that technology system ecosystem evolve. I we think get culture without. also matters. I don't know. I have this sort of, when I go to a new country and yeah. I meet people, I ask them, not like first thing, but you know, we get into conversation. <laughs> you mentioned the I, first thing you I, ask I, is I, that. Yeah. I ask like, yeah. if I can see their home screen. Ah, yeah. Like on their phone. Because it's always kind of interesting. Like what, is, what do people put on the first screen, right? Because obviously you might have tons of apps, but they're kind of on the second, third, fourth, I don't know, 10th screen or whatever. But what's on the home screen, right? Yeah. And without fail, every Vietnamese person I ask right. has at least one, generally two to three learning apps on their home screen. Oh. So it could be language. Either they're trying to improve English. I see a lot of people try to learn Chinese as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be coding. But it's interesting to me. What is on your home screen? So I'm not going to, maybe I'll ask you, Jeremy, what's on your home screen right now? Ooh. Well, if you share, I share, right? Sure, sure, uh, sure. Let's see. Oh, but wait, my phone's in sleep mode, so... In the sense oh, that... It, it, what, I, a, what a cop-out, dude. What a cop-out. Wait, let me just... It's an early day. I don't know. You start first. You start first. Okay. I mean, it's not that great. I'll say there's a lot of messaging apps on here because people refuse to align on WhatsApp. And therefore, I'm also forced to use Telegram and Signal and Slack. Okay. I have ChatGPT on my home screen. Yeah. I have Upnext, which is like a news aggregator. I have Chrome. I have Google Maps. I have Twitter. I have my child's parenting gateway app so that the school can send me like 10 messages a day about what they're doing at school. I have a workout app, I have the weather, and I have chess because my kids are learning chess and I'm trying to not get left behind. Okay. So I only have two and a half screens on my phone. I'm pretty proud of myself. So my first screen actually is just widgets. So it's like Google Calendar, my to-do list, a giant motivational sticker, which rotates a motivational quote. What minute. does it say today? What does it say today? Do more of what makes you happy. That's why it shows right now. So Aww. yeah, this makes me happy right now. Shia, yeah, chatting with you. And then a giant sticker showing the screen time because I'm trying to reduce my absolute amount of screen time. And then I have to scroll to the next page and then all the folders like bank, buy, chat, family, Google, gov, read, health, listen, record, travel, utilities, work. So these are all folders that have all the apps. And then I have Google Maps, Google Drive, Google Photos messages, alarm, then I have a contacts app, LinkedIn, ChatGPT, WhatsApp, Spotify, okay. as well Maybe as a coaching app. Question. What are you trying to learn, Jeremy? Is there something that, what would you classify on your list as like learning or trying to improve yourself? Oh, I think my biggest one is Feedly, is the RSS feed. So it just kind of like scrapes 
about like a hundred blogs that I respect and I read that every day. I try to batch that. I unsubscribe all my newsletters. I push it all into you know, RSS. And that's actually a very long reading exercise. If I'm just like going through, you know, all of Do that. Do you like it? Feedly? Dimitri Feedly? from Sento tries to get me to use it. The thing for me is that you saw from a home screen is that it's very geared around like productivity. It's about getting stuff done. And then I try not to pick up my phone for anything else. So the only thing I would really read is RSS feed where I'm trying to consume. Uh, I do create on TikTok. So I have that hidden away in a subfolder on the last screen that's away, far away. And I really try my best. I put like a screen limit where I'm just like, okay, I only get like five minutes a day. That's really funny. I know, right? But yeah, I think the big thing is I just don't have that many apps. I'm just very focused on like, if I use my phone, I'm trying to do something or trying to communicate someone. Okay. I'm going to move Feedly up to the home screen. Let's see how I do with that. Well, I mean, you got to find the right curation of the right blogs that you like. Yeah, I read a lot, but that can be cool. Ooh, Audible, I'll say, is something I listen to almost every day. Audible, Kindle. So I go to bed every night reading a book, right? It's either a sci-fi book or a nonfiction book. Reading about forecasting, science and art of prediction. That's one. But then I'm also reading, just finished reading Translation State by Anne Leckie. She's the first female author to win the Hugo and the Nebula simultaneously. And so it's a lot of fun to read sci-fi as well. Yeah. Oh, man. We got to do an episode on sci-fi. I love sci-fi. Oh, what? Did not know that. Yeah, know. Okay, next time. Everyone's into right. like numbers at all time low. She and Jeremy uh, being total sci-fi nerds. Dude. <laughs> yeah. I think anyone who's into technology loves sci-fi, right? Because it's yeah. like an opportunity to think about the future. Yeah. Um, and to weave a narrative. And if you read sci-fi from 50 years ago, like a lot of it is kind of spot on. They didn't yeah. know exactly how it was going to happen, but they could imagine a world based on what they knew about reality at that time to be like, okay, I could see how technology could evolve this way to allow us to do these things, but also to wave a cautionary flag. Like, hey, if things do get to be like this, what could the impact on society be? And like, why might we not want to do it this way? Or why should pay attention if things actually do end up this way? I mean, this is like why you have all these like AI, what would you call them? Anti-AI, freak outy people. I don't know what the right word is, but you know. Like, we'll oh, come up with a cool name for them. Counter-AI, contra-AI. Yeah, they're not like Luddites. Anyway, let's do a different thing on sci-fi, but we should all bring a book that we love and talk about like why it's awesome. Yeah. On that note, is there one word that you're taking into the week? Because... You asked me about motivational quotes, right? So I got to ask you, and it's like, is there an emotional word that represents your aspirations for this week? Oh, gosh. Maybe gratitude. So it's my 10-year wedding anniversary this week. And Congratulations. I'm filled with gratitude oh. for my wife, my kids, my family. I'm on vacation. So I'm feeling yeah. really chill. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for the life we've built together. And we work and do crazy things. And then you have a few few weeks a year where you're just like hey this is pretty nice yeah we're like a good team oh yeah this child is melting down but it's all great hey. so like our 10-year anniversary with our kids in a motel room in Bozeman, montana and we're like drinking champagne in the motel room while the kids are asleep and it's Aww. awesome it's awesome oh that's amazing what a sweet story oh i would say it's aspirational yeah for me the word i guess for the week is curiosity sure. you know manila Philippines, actually my first time in person here. And it's just been so nice to meet so many new folks. And I don't know, follow my curiosity, right? Just ask lots of different questions. And it's so nice. So 
I'm looking forward to the rest of the week. Just like, you know. And also, you know, just Jolly a lot B. of fascinating history. I didn't get there. Okay, I might be eating a lot, okay? I'd be eating adobo. I'd be eating sinagang. I'd be eating pork sisig. All the stuff that I don't get to eat, unfortunately, as much. So, absolutely delicious. On that note, eat some vegetables. All right, have vegetables. fun. Vegetables. See ya. Bye, Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.